Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be discussing the horse race, a horse race, the horse race. It's, it, you know, if you're in the fight community, this horse race, I think will have more appeal than the Kentucky Derby. Welcome to the ultimate crowdsource personal finance show. This is Choose FI. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. guys, what do I mean by that? The horse race, basically what we're going to do, it's going to be a mix up. It's going to be a mashup. Uh, we are going to take a longitudinal look at portfolios that are very popular in the financial independence community and maybe some that aren't. And we're going to put these side by side over a period of time. We'll tell you a little bit more about that, but to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I am doing quite well. Yeah, everything's going good. We actually, I know we like to joke about my uh, frolicking in the pool, right? Life is getting back to normal. My kids had their first swim meet yesterday for summer. So it was back to kind of real life. It was the the old 90 degree heat for four plus hours, <laughs> and, which is the negative side. But the positive side was the kids had a ball. It was so great seeing, I mean, we have nearly 200 kids on the swim team and it was just, it was a really good time. So yeah, slowly but surely, life's getting back to normal. Yeah, I hear you. I'm in the same place of general encouragement, and it was uh, pretty cool. This past week, we had Brian Veraldi come join us uh, in town, and we recorded an episode with him while he was here. And I know uh, you guys were able to go to a meetup at Hardywood here in Richmond, Virginia, and it was pretty cool just to be able to find, even though it was kind of a last-minute uh, get-together, it was pretty cool to actually be able to have an in-person meetup. Yeah, it was amazing. It really was great. I mean, this is the first time. So obviously we have our Chooseify local groups, I guess, in 300 cities in the world. And, you know, we have a, a thriving one here in Richmond. But obviously, because, you know, 2020, I haven't seen anybody in 16 plus months. So it was really, really cool. The, the day before, so the day before Brian came into town, I just quickly said, hey, we're thinking about going to this brewery, this popular brewery here tomorrow night at five. If you're in, come on down. We'll be there. So, yeah, I mean, we we wound up getting I think it was nearly 30 people show up oh, just wow. kind of right, which is amazing, like under 24 hours notice. And it was just really wonderful. You know, a lot of familiar faces, but it was a majority of new people, actually, which I was very pleasantly surprised by. And actually, we had Jonathan, you and I met these guys at the uh, book signing we had almost two years ago, a couple of uh, Air Force officers from Langley Air Force Base up in DC actually drove all the way down two hours down to the Richmond meetup just to come on out. It was really, really cool to see them. And yeah, I just met a bunch of new people. And just it's so cool. Like, you know, you and I talk about a lot of these these things, you know, literally making that move to FI or, hey, I'm thinking about slow travel, but I don't know what it'll take me to get from here to there. And like, I had those conversations. There was one, one guy who I just met, his wife is retiring in August and they are thinking about slow travel. And he's mm -hmm. like, you know, we're all there. She, I'm retired. She's getting ready to retire. 
and you know, I, in my mind, I was like, okay, so what's the hang up? You know, it seemed like they were ready. And I figured stupidly that, or, or erroneously, let's say that it was the house. Like maybe they have some attachment to the house. So I was talking about that and he's like, oh no, no, I've got no issue with the house. Like we don't care about that. It sounded like me, like we don't care about the house at all. And then he was saying like, you know, it's literally just taking that first step of, we know where we want to go. It's this place in Portugal, but like just literally like messaging some expats who are there. And it was like, it was so interesting, Jonathan. And I'm not sure I'm explaining this right, but like, it was that one thing we talk about action, right? Taking action. That is really the fundamental underpinning of what we're doing here at Choose If I, right? It's we're trying to get you to take action to make your life better. And literally the one thing that he had to do, he was all set otherwise, was to go to a Facebook group for expats in Portugal and make a post. That was the only thing holding him up. And I told him, when you do that, send me an email. You know, I'm challenging you. Here's an accountability buddy, right? Like that's another thing we talk about, accountability, right? You and I have done that with workouts. We, we talk about that all the time. And like, just that tiny, tiny little thing. So anyway, long story short, it was just a super cool conversation. It's just neat to see people really living this stuff in real life and struggles large and small. You know what my problem with the the phrase long story short is it's that sometimes the long story should stay long. It doesn't need to be truncated. It's a great story. And we're, we're good at extending long stories and making them <laughs> the appropriate amount of time here. But you know what? I was, uh, the other day I was, uh, we are overdue for a vacation. Forget the word staycation. We are overdue. The Mendonza family is overdue for a real vacation. And I think I've forgotten how to plan one. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how do I do this? What's the search? What do I put in? You know, like, what do you even do here? It, it's like legitimately a skill of planning out an awesome time away from home. And I had a little bit of like intimidation as I went to the keyboard as much as I, I mean, I'm really good at finding answers to stuff, but I'm, I'm, Danny has handed me the responsibility of, I don't want to have any vomit. I just want it to be easy. I don't want to go have fun. Tell me where we're going. And I was like, this is a lot of responsibility. <laughs> Are you sure you're up to it? <laughs> I think I am. I think I am, but I'm digging in right now. And I got started last night and I just, I got stuck. So, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I got her wish list criteria like, you know, we have two kids, four and two years old. That puts some constraints around what you want to do, what actually is a vacation and what is a hellish experience away from home <laughs> where you just can't wait to get back. So trying to parse what exactly that would look like and then follow through and execute on that with, like, I didn't plan this two years in advance. You know, it's it's not been mapped out massively ahead of time. It's just, no, now's the right time. Let's plan it. But now what? Yeah, that's interesting. So I've couple of little pieces of feedback because I've actually been looking into this recently and a little hack that you and I probably don't know as well as we should. So I'm taking notes, get out your pen and paper yeah. people. Let's <laughs> take notes together. <laughs> yeah, I think this, this should be useful. So when we had Chris Hutchins on recently talking about life hacks, he has a new podcast called all the hacks and it's wonderful. He actually had Scott from Scott's Cheap Flights on recently, his most recent episode. And I swear this was like the single best travel episode I've ever listened to of mm. any podcast in my life. And they were going through, so it seems like most of the rest of the world understands how powerful Google Flights is. That's something that's totally outside of my wheelhouse, but I think that is the starting point for flights. They were describing how like, you know, especially if you're flexible with your destinations, and maybe even your departure airports. So like here in Richmond, you know, within a couple hours, we've got DC airports, we've got Raleigh, we've got 
Norfolk and, you know, Richmond, obviously. So you can kind of put in seven departure airports and seven destinations and they can just kind of do all the work in the background. So you're not doing whatever it is, 49 or whatever the, the number of, or it's probably many multiples of that, of, of different combinations. And you can put in, Hey, I only want one stop mm. or no more than one stop. And you know, it has to leave in the morning or arrive at X time. So you can do all the work and Google flights does this all for you. So their explanation was clearly a lot better than mine since they've done it many, many, many dozens or hundreds of times. And I'm just parroting what I heard on a podcast, but that's definitely the starting point for flights. I don't know if you guys are going to fly, you know, with the kids, if that's uh, in the cards or not. They haven't come out with the autopilot RVs yet, you know, like Tesla has not <laughs> stepped up to the plate on that one. So we'll figure it out. But all everything is on the table. I think I got to figure out what are those seven destinations. And then I can work my way backward with, to your point, I probably would just do Richmond or DC, but I guess we could do Norfolk and a couple others. I mean, if it really came down to it. But, you know, there is really a process for this. And th and I would say that there are so many skills in life and mapping out an epic trip for your family that has the right amount of structure with the right amount of downtime is its own art form. And you can start doing that research for free and then looking for a way to add in optimizations to reduce the cost, et cetera. Like, can we work in travel rewards, et cetera? Can we use something like Google Flights? And here, what you said there, I just want to, I want to point that out. What if you could have a tool that makes all these connection for you with the criteria? My only real criteria is one flight. <laughs> yeah. That's the criteria. One, no, one flight, no hopovers. Let's go. Let's get there quickly. So uh, <laughs> we'll have fun. But I mean, we have, you and I have this window. Basically, I just kind of, I let you kind of reverse engineer it first since we are pretty flexible. And you said, all right, August 1st through September 1st, that is our 2021 Red X month, right? And I know most of our audience at this point has been familiar with that. That's the month. We're crossing that one out. So I could just come up with my own Red X month, in which case then we would need to figure out how to cover two months of one of us being away. I was like, well, all right, I guess it's mine too. So, <laughs> so <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. So, so that kind of forced me to uh, figure that out and not let this opportunity slip away. So now I got to figure out, all right, August 1 through September 1, where are we going? <laughs> going somewhere. That's very cool. The other, just quick to close the loop on that. So it seems like actually rental cars are usually the easiest part of planning travel. Like they're ubiquitous. They're essentially commodities, right? Like there's no difference, but there is a nationwide shortage of rental cars. Really? Yeah. I actually, I noticed as I went to a, a mastermind immersion retreat a couple of weeks ago in Austin, Texas with uh, Dominic Cortuccio's group. And nobody could find rental cars. Wow. Like I I read articles and I thought they were like, I mean, you never know when things are being overblown. Like, you know, people are renting U-Hauls in Hawaii instead of getting a rental car because all the rental car, like, you know, I've read multiple of those articles and I believe them certainly, but like until you actually see it in person, like, oh wow, I have to rent a U-Haul instead of like my nice uh, Honda Accord or whatever. Like there's nothing left. And we saw that on the ground, like none of the guys could find a rental car. So we had to take like this ridiculous Uber or car service. So for anybody out there, if you're planning a trip, usually the rental car is the easiest part, but it's the constraint this year. Wow. So really you want to make sure, cause clearly you don't want to fly to a place and get there and realize, oh wow, I can't get around. I wonder what's driving that. Like, I mean, I'm sure airports and planes are uh, getting more traffic than they did this time last year, but I also suspect they're not back to like peak levels that they were prior to all this. I wonder if the rental can, I know you can't speak to this with like 
knowledge on the other side, but I wonder if maybe some of the rental car companies liquidated some of their fleets or there's less companies that are out there doing this now. I remember Hertz was, there was a lot of drama in the Hertz space about a year ago when all this was, you know, collapsing. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think you're onto something there. I obviously I did not prepare for this. This is just a <laughs> off the cuff conversation. So I would have done some research had I had any inkling, but yeah, I think clearly there's some kind of ramifications from you know, March 2020 on that are leading to this. I think it's a confluence of events and not just like one particular like, oh, we decided to liquidate on X day. But but I think that is the portion of it. So, uh, yeah, rest assured, we we will research this and, and follow up. But, uh, you know, I'm sure people can do their own Googling around this. But I've also heard that there's going to be so the airlines, many of them have cut their service significantly and I can tell you from, you know, my recent experience being on four separate flights, because, yeah, unfortunately, we don't have too many directs here from Richmond. Every seat was full. Wow. And yeah, this was before, you know, summer travel hasn't even started yet and people are feeling more emboldened to travel. So there's a non-zero chance that like flight prices start creeping up, just simple supply and demand. Right. Mm. So, you know, hopefully the supply will then increase. But I don't know. I truly don't know how nimble the airlines can be to add capacity, you know, within a 30 to 90 day window. I'm not, I'm just not educated on that, but we might be in the minivan. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, we have, uh, we have some nice national parks within a five or six hour drive. You got, uh, yeah, I'm open to our banks, obviously completely open to it. Completely open to it. We just will not mm-hmm. be at home. <laughs> Local tourism, untourism, but it will not be a staycation will not be a staycation. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to go ahead and transition here. I want to talk about the horse race today. So uh, context for this, uh, in the FI community, I think by and large, Brad, would you agree, we consider ourselves buy and hold long-term investors. I think that would be 90 plus, 95 plus percent of our audience, regardless of the actual tactic they use, would fall under the umbrella of long-term buy and hold investors. Yeah, I think that is unquestionably true. Now, if you get past that, we are a huge spaghetti mess of like directionally moving in the same direction, but our actual tactics, you know, they can look wildly different depending on the individual. When you, when you get up and you're looking at it from a satellite view that, you know, we're all kind of going in the same direction, long-term buy and hold investing, but the actual methodology to get there can become somewhat fractured. So we've talked about the various tactics that comprise long-term buy and hold investing on this show over the past 400 plus episodes. And we've even kind of pitted them against each other occasionally. What we've never done is had a way to really track past performance for you and report back so that if you were interested in past performance over, say, the last four years, the last five years, the last 10 years, the last 40 years, where applicable, uh, there was no real way of doing that. And, And we think that maybe we could improve on that. And while, again, anything we could come up with would only be past performance, and everybody should know that past performance does not predict future performance, it would still certainly be valuable and entertaining for us as people that are interested in performance. And as that pertains to our path to financial independence. So Brad, uh, long story, long way of handing this over to you. <laughs> Tell us more about the horse race idea. Yeah. So actually I'll give the, uh, the genesis of this. So Edmund T who's obviously a significant member of our team and has been on the podcast multiple times. You guys should definitely know him. He's a ultra, ultra optimizer. So he came to me with this idea of, hey, what if I took my own portfolio, which tracks and is really focused on dividend investing, 
and made something, let's say, uh, at M1 Finance. So they have the ability to track, they call them pies. So you're able to essentially set this up and mirror your exact percentages of I'm invested in X for 27% and Y in 42%, whatever it may be, right? And it's a, actually a really, really neat functionality that they have. So Ed had this idea for dividends. And I'm like, okay, that's a great idea. You know, my bias, Jonathan, it's uh, longstanding is I'm not a dividend guy. That's not my thing. So I heard that. I'm like, okay, I don't want to do that solely as an idea. But what if we ask some friends of the community to make their own pies based on their own investing styles, right? So we could get J.L. Collins, we could get Paul Merriman, we could get Brian Feraldi, we could get, you know, Paula Pan, Jillian, whoever it may be, Chad Carson. We have so many friends of the community. And like you said, we're all going in the same direction, right? Like that's the important part here. We're all thinking long-term. This is like the prerequisite for being a member of the Phi community. It's long-term thinking. So very, very few of us, I'm sure there are some Phi people who are day traders, but vanishingly few right? Like we are thinking over decades. But beyond that, I think sometimes we get pigeonholed as, oh, we're only stock index funds and total stock market index fund or S&P 500. And that's it. That's the line, right? And I think you and I, Jonathan, have for a very long time now, years, said there's more nuance than that. You know, a lot of people, even a Brian Feraldi, who is an individual stock investor, he says that a significant portion, I don't, he's never pinned it down exactly, but maybe even a majority of his net worth is in index funds. And then he obviously has this significant portion that's in individual stocks and, and that's his strategy. So it's important to know that, that there is nuance here. And this is a very, very large tent of, we all have our strategies. And I think providing that info. And also I've had so many people, Jonathan say like, especially with Brian's episodes, like I finally found my home in the Phi community because they almost felt unnecessarily ostracized. And that might be a, a too strong of a word, but just uncomfortable with, oh, there's only it's VTSAX or nothing. Right. I mean, how long was that the narrative? And I think you and I have tried very, very hard to break that narrative and say there is nuance. Yeah. And I think it's really important. It's what do you want to do? So, you know, what we try to do on this show over the last four years is point out the pitfalls and the advantages of various strategies. And we really try to avoid huge financial mistakes and position ourselves for the best chance of success, the most replicable chance of success while recognizing that there's not just one answer for everyone, right? It, it, there is going to be some nuance in the journey. So as we start to maybe talk a little bit more about these pies, it would be kind of cool to talk about you know, why they're different, but why they're worth discussing, why they're part of the conversation. And really what we don't, we don't want to push you towards any one of these. We're not ranking these in any capacity. These are all equally weighted. Some of them will be very familiar to you. Some of them might surprise you. We're just presenting them to you and encouraging you, like if they have appeal, if you'd like to do more information, we're going to start tracking them over a extended period of time. If we're still doing this show in 75 years, we'll have 75 years worth of data. <laughs> well, you guys aren't retired at all. Gosh, <laughs> still up there. Um, all right. But Brad, you talked about total stock market index fund. Let's actually start there. Let's talk about VTSAX. Let's talk about JL Collins. JL Collins 
And I would say he, you know, he is one of the godfathers of Phi. I mean, this guy uh, really piloted back in 2012, 2013, right about the same time that Mr. Money Mustache was also writing. JL Collins was talking about this idea of the simple path to wealth. And he took something that had been really, for most of us, felt a little bit too complex, felt like it's just a little bit, you know, it's a little bit out there, outside of our comfort zone. We'll just wait for it later. And he broke it down. And he made it simple. And he gave us an actionable way to get started, get invested. And it's worth pointing out, though, that JL Collins, so he's he advocates for a to, one fund. It's a one fund strategy during the accumulation phase, and it's VTSAX. Why pick? You can just own them all. Own all the winners, own all the losers. The self-cleansing nature of the total stock market index fund will just, it's not just going to be good enough. It's going to be better than anything else that you could find over time. But it's worth pointing out that JL Collins admits that he actually got to financial independence by buying and holding individual companies. But he says, and he points out, I could have done it better. I could have done it easier with far less stress in a much more replicated way. And I could be worth more if I had just used the strategy that I'm sharing with you right now. So embedded in that is that there are a bunch of ways to do this. Dale Collins with the benefit of 30, 40 years of investing is telling you, this is just frankly what I would have done if I could start over. This is what I want my daughter to do. This is what I would recommend. I mean, he, he wrote all of this to really give his daughter the easiest path to go. So it's not the only way. It's a highly optimized way and it's a very simple way and you're going to get a better return than the vast majority of the market. There's reasons that some of these other uh, pies exist and reasons that people talk about them. But I just wanted to highlight the fact that like VTSAX, as much as we love it and as simple as it is, it is not this dogmatic thing that if you don't do this, you're not of the fi part of the FI community. It just makes sense for many people. It will ensure, it will guarantee that you keep up with the market and get market returns, which the vast, vast majority of investors simply do not do, even when the market is going straight up. Brad, you want to make any additional comments on that? That's uh, that's a pretty good summation, certainly. So yeah, the one thing I did not mention, so we talked about this horse race, right? That's how we set it up. So we actually did ask five of our friends to give us their portfolios. So we have, uh, we have Ed's dividend strategy and we have five friends. So yeah, we're starting with JL Collins, but yeah, we've got Paul Merriman, Paula Pan, Jillian Johnsrud and Frank Vasquez. So yeah, we're going to go through all those, but yeah, it's pretty cool here to see, like you can literally click on this pie here and it's, you know, JL Collins, simple path to wealth, wealth accumulation, right? Yep. Like as simple as can be, this is, if JL Collins was on the phone with you, this is the advice he would give. Like you said, he created his site as a letter to his daughter, and this is the advice that he would give. So yeah, it's very cool. So, and just one point of clarification. So we talk about VTSAX. That's what Jim talks about in his book and his website. What you will see here is the Vanguard total stock market ETF, which is the ticker symbol is VTI. So M1 has ETFs and not mutual funds. Yep. Okay. So the distinction is virtually zero, I mean, essentially zero, just as a point of clarification. So if you get there and say, what the heck is VTI? It is the identical ETF of VTSAX. Yep. That is a great point. That is a great point. And that's one of the reasons that this is so compelling to be able to map these out in this way is that when you're looking at these ETFs and you're using a commission-free platform like M1, like you're removing a lot of the friction a lot of the expense ratios, a lot of the fees that are normally tacked in with these types of things. So it allows us to kind of get an apples to apples comparison of what are these funds doing in parallel. So with JL Collins, we had him on our show. We featured him many, many times, but I'll, I'll highlight three episodes in particular, episode 19, 
episode 34 and episode 284. Most recently, I believe that was the last time he was on. And uh, with all of these, you can access them at the three-digit number. So if you want to go listen to episode 19, you can go to chooseify.com slash 019, chooseify.com slash 034, chooseify.com slash 284. That's, that's just if you wanted to listen to J.L. Collins explain these episodes and, and go into more of a deep dive of how he you know really settled on this. J.L. Collins has two portfolios that uh, we ended up putting in here. One is the Wealth Accumulation portfolio. And the second uh, one is the wealth preservation. So there's two different aspects to this. You're, you're accumulating wealth and then you're effectively in drawdown or you're trying to preserve your wealth and make it last as long as possible. And one is more conservative by nature than the other. And so both of those are there to run in parallel. Yeah. And actually this is one episode where it might behoove you to uh, fire up a web browser and uh, follow along on this article. So you can just go to chooseify.com slash pie, P-I-E, and that'll take you to this article and you can kind of click along here with us as we go through these. Because uh, sometimes, you know, we, Jonathan, you and I can do a pretty good job of talking out loud, but it's pretty neat to see this on the screen. Yes. And so I, we will not try to redo all of those episodes because we've dedicated entire episodes to each of these pies or each of these general strategies. But just for context for individuals that are interested in VTSAX or VTI, in this case, the ETF that, that is included as the primary driver in one of these pies. With one purchase, you can purchase all the publicly traded companies inside the United States. It's over 3,000 companies, and you're going to own a very, very tiny piece of all of them. It's a cap-weighted fund, meaning the most valuable companies, the companies with the largest market cap, you're going to own a higher percentage of those than you are of a company that's maybe not as valuable or as in value in this case being market cap. It's not as big. It doesn't have as much market cap. It gives you wonderful exposure, and you are guaranteed to keep up with the stock market. You know, whatever the stock market is doing for better or worse, on average, you are going to be able to keep up with that. And most investors simply can't. And when you move to the wealth preservation portfolio, it just kind of rounds it out and it adds in a, a bond portfolio to go right along with that. And JL Collins says that's to smooth the ride. Basically bonds have less volatility than stocks. So when you add a percentage of bonds in that smooths the ride, so it's two options there. And what I love about J.L. Collins' strategy is the simplicity, but also, and he describes this, it's a self-cleansing nature of the stock. And this is something that he's talked about in detail, but basically it has advantages for you when the stocks are going up because you're going to start owning an increasing amount of them as they go up. But it also has some benefit for you as a stock is crashing and that as the stock becomes less valuable, you increasingly own less of it as a percentage of your holdings. And so he describes this, the self-cleansing nature. But uh, with that episode we just did with Brian Feraldi, it's worth pointing out that Brian was pointing out how growth stocks in the last couple months have just taken a beating. So they've all gone up, they've all done really well, but in the last couple months, growth stocks have just gotten absolutely crushed. Some of them down as much as like 40% in a couple examples that he was giving us. Whereas VTSAX or the total stock market was down about 5% over the same relative time period while still having much of the upward trajectory that it had since the low point from last year in 2020. So just kind of worth pointing out to you. And it's one of the reasons that we get so excited about it and that we talk about it as often as we do, but it is not, it's not your only option when it comes to long-term buy and hold investing and that there is nuance. People have highlighted some of the nuance and explained why they get excited about it. And they've advocated on this show, which is why I'm excited to actually see some of these pies get added to this article. 
Hey, this is Andrew from the Choose a Five team. Hope you're enjoying the show. We're gonna get right back to it after these quick messages. So Jonathan, that brings us to uh, Paul Merriman, who we've had on a couple times, actually in episode 130 and 290. And you know, if you wanna talk about nuanced investing, I think uh, Paul is case in point number one, certainly of the people we've had on the show. I know you were extraordinarily intrigued by what Paul was talking about. He has a, a significant focus on small cap, and that's not something that really was on my radar screen before that episode. And, you know, like you were just saying, and we've talked about before, it's very interesting when you pick a total stock market index fund and you think, sure, I'm getting I'm getting 3,000 plus companies, but realistically, 35 or 40% of the money you're investing is going to the top 10 biggest companies. So a tiny, tiny, tiny little fraction is going to the smallest thousand or even 2000, right? So it's interesting and it's a little more active investing, but we're still talking mutual funds, right? So most of the fundamentals that we're talking about in a lot of these cases, right? It's keep your expenses low, right? Can you keep your expense ratios low? Like that's clearly an important factor and you know that that's hit here which is nice but if small cap value growth if, if these things appeal to you then somebody like paul merriman jonathan is somebody you can really look to for oh what would that look like if i wanted to add that layer of nuance completely agree and, and i love the logic that paul uses but what's interesting about this and it's why it's more important that you look at the thesis and decide whether or not it makes sense to you logically, then you look over the returns over a short or intermediate time period. Because just because the thesis is strong doesn't mean the returns are going to map out that. So to your point, Brad, now that we're talking about Paul Merriman, Paul has some incredible logic here. He says, when you look over like a 40 or 50 year period, the returns are almost always coming from small cap and value. But Brad, when you look over the, like the last 10 years, to your point, it has been all growth. It's been all tech. And so now we can actually do a little bit of compare and contrast here. The good news is with all of these funds you want, the only way you lost is if you didn't take any action at all, or you were maybe bobbing and weaving, getting in and out of the market, et cetera. If you just stayed the course with any one of these, we'll start because this is a horse race, right? And we actually have mm -hmm. data to share with you guys. If we have data, we're starting our picks here at, at uh, June 5th, 2016, an arbitrary date that was picked, or maybe the first day that we could start tracking, but you know, we'll be able to do all of our longitudinal studies going forward when we publish these results. But now we're looking at five years later, right? Five years later, if you did JL Collins' simple path to wealth, you would have had 127% return. Your money would have more than doubled if you were on his accumulation pathway. Whatever money you had put in, you know, on June 5th, 2016 would have doubled. And of course, as you dollar cost average and you bought along the way, sometimes you're buying more, sometimes you're buying less. All of that would have gone up as well. But just a hundred bucks plopped in in 2016 would have turned into $225, $230, somewhere in that range. In contrast to that, his wealth preservation, even though it's not as aggressive, it still returned 96%. It had a 96% return. So you took less risk, you had less volatility, but you still nearly doubled your money. Right, that's with 25% bonds in there and 75% total stock market index fund. And yes, still had a 96.19% return. And that's actually you know, why I said before we should follow along on this article. So yeah, chooseavetta.com slash pi. Literally, Ed and the team put all of these charts in here, which is 
pretty awesome to kind of scroll down here, Jonathan. You yeah. talk about a horse race and you just, as you scroll down and obviously what do they say? Past performance is not indicative of future results, yada, 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 all that stuff. And clearly five years is not a long enough timeline, but it's still kind of cool to look at, look at these strategies over the last five years. I'd love to see it over 10, 20, 30 plus years. And that will be neat going forward. But yeah, it's, you know, I'm just looking at the two JL Collins ones, right? Like you said, it's nearly 128% for the wealth accumulation and 96%, which is nothing to sneeze at for wealth preservation. And for individuals that are more concerned about reducing volatility, is your returns dropping from, you know, uh, 127% down to 96%, but you're able to sleep better at night and you don't see as much of a dip? you know, when bad stuff happens, is that worth it? You could make the case. I think it might be for many, many individuals. So anyways, we'll keep moving here, but JL Collins, both those funds, we listed those. Paul Merriman's, this whole strategy is, yes, we want total stock market or yes, we, but we want them all. We want to weight evenly by app, asset class. We want some large cap. We want some small cap. We want some value. We want some international. We want to mix them all together. And that's great. It's a very strong thesis, but the returns over the last five years, and honestly, probably closer to the last 10 years, have been kind of lackluster. It's still a 78% return, but just doing a simple one fund strategy where you throw it all at the total stock market and let the winners be the winners produced 127% in contrast, right? That's a pretty big deficit. But again, it's over the last five years. And now, so, you, so you know, my point with this being, even looking at this, I don't necessarily look at this and say, well, this is a bad strategy. It's just over the last five or 10 years, this has underperformed. And you don't necessarily want to switch horses like halfway through the race because you're definitely going to lose. It goes to the whole thing. Like if you believe that this thesis is strong, it means that you've been buying these companies while they've been lower and cheaper. And over the long term, 20, 30, 40 years, they're going to go back and they're out. They're going to, but you need to believe that as opposed to you're just, you know, trying one strategy, hanging around for two years, you don't like the returns, you sell out of that and move to the other one. I mean, that's how you consistently underperform the market. So understanding the why of these is a really big deal. But the ultimate buy and hold, 100% uh, equity portfolio returned 78%. And Paul has a couple of variations of this as well. But I mean, that that's roughly accurate. Right now, those would have been at 78%. And it would make sense to us because we know that over the last five years, small businesses have been kind of hurt. You know, they've, they've taken some damage and value companies have not produced outsized returns. Most of our market returns lately have been in tech and growth and just kind of worth thinking that through and saying, do I think the next five years, the next 10 years are going to look just like the last five. That's kind of important. You know, when you look at these numbers, it's really important to think through the implications of why these numbers are showing up on your paper to the degree that you're able. And if you've made a decision, do your best to stay the course if you think that thesis still holds. So, uh, Brad, any additional comments on that? No, no, I think we should move along. We've got, uh, we've got Paula Pan up next. So this is actually very cool. We've got her afford anything portfolio. So here in the article, it's saying this is how she invests the parts of her savings that aren't directly invested in individual stocks, real estate, which as we know is a significant portion, or crypto. She said, as of February, 2021, she has about a third of her investments in this portfolio. So you assume two thirds of her investments are probably in, in real estate, et cetera, right? But 
this is how Paula allocates her portfolio. And Jonathan, her returns, just looking at this uh, over that five year, right? We're doing the horse race. It's uh, 116%. So that's pretty darn close to the uh, JL Collins wealth accumulation. And she's got a, a neat thing here. So it looks like there are eight distinct items that she puts in this portfolio. And actually two thirds of it is the Vanguard total stock market index fund, yep. right? So that VTI that we talked about. And then the final third is made up of a bunch of different. So she's got small cap, international, couple of international, actually, it looks like. And yeah, some small cap value, large cap value, emerging markets. So this is a pretty broadly diversified fund here. But clearly the background, obviously, it's two thirds VTI. So this is not terribly dissimilar from JL Collins, but with a little more options for diversification. I agree. You know, I was playing around with some M1 pies and I was playing around with a blend of uh, JL Collins and Paul Merriman's because I appreciate the logic of what Paul Merriman does and the thesis that he's running on. But I also like the the simplicity of JL Collins. And I kind of came to somewhat of a different, a uh, similar conclusion to Paula Pant. And uh, I mean, if you really look at what she's doing, she's saying, you're right, backbone, VTI, which again, for people, we've said this, but you really need to lock it down if you're going to interpret these pies. VTI is just VTSEX as an ETF instead of a mutual fund. So VTI as kind of the backbone at two thirds. And then, hey, I'd like a little bit more exposure to small cap and international. That's my big interpretation. We're basically adding in a cumulative, you know, 25, 30% that is uh, going back into small cap and international just to add some additional. And that's interesting because one of our friends that uh, shared a pie with us was Frank Vasquez. And we'll come to his in just a couple minutes here. But Frank was actually pointing out that when you're looking for negative correlation, things that are negatively correlated with the total stock market, actually small cap does have a decent negative correlation factor to it. And so they, they responds a little bit differently. And uh, I was just very surprised to hear him say that. And it does go to the point, like it's this whole conversation we had, and maybe we can pull up that episode. Are you as diversified as you think you are? And, uh, if you own a large cap fund and a total stock market fund, you're not. They're the exact same, right? They're not, they're just because you have a bunch of companies or a bunch of different ones has nothing to do with diversification. And really it's important to understand the relationship. People say diversification, what they're usually looking for is negative correlation, right? When one goes down, does the other stay, hold the line or does it go up? And that's what most people actually want. And so just kind of understanding those terms, we can pull that episode for you when we get to Frank's pie. But I think Paula is recognizing some of that and she's tilting a little bit towards small cap and international here. All right, Jonathan. So up next, we've got uh, Jillian Johnsrud, who, as you know, is the host of the Everyday Courage podcast, which is phenomenal. Everybody should uh, definitely subscribe to that. And she actually, so she has an interesting strategy. She keeps her investing extraordinarily simple by using Vanguard target date funds. Okay. So these funds are generally pretty broadly based mutual funds, but it's slightly active on the part of the management company in that as you get closer to that target date, which theoretically is a re some retirement date, whatever that may be, you're rebalanced into more conservative holdings. So you'll see the percentage of, let's say, bonds that will go up as you get closer to that target date. So in theory, this is something that it's a hands-off approach. It's going to be pretty aggressive at the beginning, you know, many decades out. And then it will get more conservative or more bond heavy as you get closer to that 
that target date. So yeah, so this is what she does. And I guess we looked at a couple of those. So let's say Vanguard target retirement 2035 funds. So this is about 25 years from now. It's uh, VTTHX. And we've got a couple other ones. And what we did since these target date funds are not in M1, we actually went back to our buddy Paul Merriman and got some of his pies, which he has the years to retirement pies. Okay, so they're in essence a target date fund, but uh, he set them up. He has a 25 years to retirement, a 20 and a 15. And these are all laid out here just straight down. And Jonathan, if you want to uh, dive into maybe the holdings a little bit, it might be pretty interesting. Yeah, the holdings of a, of a target date fund are going to be a little bit complicated just to kind of break down in a way that's meaningful for people. But what I would just say generally is I've always been personally, personally, I've always been a little bit hesitant to hop on the target date bandwagon, including when Paul was talking about it, uh, you know, as one of his options for a reason, especially for me in the, uh, in the accumulation phase, one, you have less control of what's in it. And two, they tend to be a little bit too conservative, too fast. So let's say that you're like, all right, I'm planning on retiring, you know, in the next 10 years. So I'm going to get a 10 year target date fund, right? Well, a 10 year target date fund targeting the year, you know, 2030, I guess it's going to have a lot of bonds in it. And even a 2035 fund or 2040, fund, it's going to have a lot more bonds in it that I'm going to want as an investor that's earlier on in my journey. And while we don't have the exact funds uh, that Jillian is using, as you said, we were able to kind of rebuild a version of them you know, I'm looking at, at, at this right now and with the pie that we were able to build, I mean, we're going to have some tips in there. I think we're going to have some bonds in there. We're going to be spread. I mean, it's, it's going to provide you a pretty complex portfolio with just one fund. So it's like a, a larger shell fund. That's got a lot of funds embedded in that. But I, I mean, when you look at the returns on these, I'm not totally surprised to see that, you know, over a five-year period, we're looking at, a 62% return on the 25-year to retirement plan, a 58% return on the 20-year to retirement plan, and a 51% return on the 15 years to retirement. So that is the 2035, the 2040, and the 2045 fund, respectively. And that's, you know, these funds, by their nature, they allow you to get more complexity, but they also kind of lock you into a certain level of uh, conservation. They're conservative. And it's going to protect that trend line Sure, less volatility, but it is also going to have an effect on your performance as well. And you can see that, you know, those, those are returning a little bit less here. But again, I want to point out, you're still doing better than if your money's on the sidelines or you're not getting involved. I mean, it's all of these produced money. The only way you lost money was by not having anything invest in the market, no matter what the market did, you know, the only way you lost was like just to not take action on this. So anyways, uh, kind of worth, worth pulling out. All right, Jonathan, I guess our, our last uh, friend of Choose a Five Pie here is actually our good buddy, Frank Vasquez. And he was on the podcast on episode 194 and 313. And I think this is probably the one that you're most excited about diving into. So Frank gave us three different pies here. So we've got his basic accumulation, his golden ratio, and his experimental risk parity lever one. So yeah, we got some. <laughs> I'm like genuinely cool curious. And we got to a section like, ooh, what did Frank? Because you know how much time he spent looking over all of the pies that are out there. I mean, he's spent an inordinate amount of time and then running them through different portfolio checkers and looking for a negative correlate. I mean, I'm genuinely, I'm going to find out with the audience on this one. I'm genuinely curious <laughs> to see what's in these pies. 
Yeah. And just to let everybody know, Frank is just extremely intelligent. And like you said, he dives into things to a level that we've probably never seen before. He has a podcast that most of it goes over my head. But for people who are interested in this, like this is just amazing information. It's risk parity radio. So that's, you know, you're listening to this podcast, search for risk parity radio. And uh, yeah, prepare to be thoroughly entertained and intellectually simulated. So yeah, Jonathan, uh, it looks like Frank's basic accumulation. So of the last five year horse race, so far, this is the winner. It's up uh, 147 plus percent. So yeah, let, why don't we dive into that one? All right, 147%. So we got a five-year return here, and he has two. It's made up of two different funds. Both are Vanguard funds. Uh, the I'll give the ticker symbols, but really the more important part is what are they? So the top one is, uh, so it's 50% small cap value. So that's kind of interesting, right? He's kind of drawing a little bit of the Paul Merriman thesis. We have a small cap value ETF. It's the Vanguard S&P small cap 600 value ETF. The ticker is VIOV, and he has that for 50% of the pie. And then the other one, is the Vanguard Growth ETF. The ticker is VUG. And the Vanguard Growth ETF seeks to track the performance of the uh, CRSP, Brad, the CR, the CRISP, CRSP, U.S. Large Cap Growth Index, measures the investment of large cap growth stocks. The fund employs an indexing investment approach designed to track the performance of the index. So, I mean, we're talking about an index fund, but it's specifically focused on growth and the other is focused on small cap value. So those two in parallel, it's kind of interesting to see them. And I'm imagining, Brad, there's some aspect of like the negative correlation, like these two are probably more negatively correlated. But again, we're getting better returns. I'd be very interested. We should have them on as a segment to explain why these two, as opposed to like a total stock market plus, you know, it's almost like he picked with total smart market, we're going to have everything, but it's going to be cap weighted. But he's like, you know what? I really want to tilt towards small cap value and I want to tilt towards growth. So what does that mean we're leaving out? Yeah, we definitely need to follow up with Frank on this. Brad said, I'm not uh, touching that one. Let's ask Frank. I'm not touching that (laughs) with a 10 foot pole. (laughs) Uh, All right. That's really cool though. So that's, that's interesting. So it's a slight pivot on, we're still using index funds, but we're targeting two different asset classes and we're tilting each at 50%. We're making sure each half gets 50%. Inside of that, it'll take the index approach, but each is getting 50%. Now we have two others here that are slight pivots on this. And I believe he's actually talked about in past episodes that we've done with him. And it is the, uh, the golden ratio and the experimental risk parity lever. So I believe with his experimental risk parity lever, the idea was to get a set of funds together that are as negative correlated as possible. So you always have a move when something's going down, something else is going straight up. So in this case, in this experimental case, it has a, a return over five years of 79%, but these funds are doing different things. So Frank isn't all in on one of these. He's using these probably for different timelines and for different goals. He obviously just like us. And with all of these, he looks at the performance not just as like, well, this was a better choice than that one. Like the goal wasn't necessarily to find a fund that would return 800%. The goal was something that it was something that would help you get to your objective. So the goal isn't always to get the biggest percentage. It's to protect you against the future, which is unknown and your goals and your needs for money, which are also predicated on timelines. You know, you want to buy a house, you want to buy a house in five years and your checking account is only offering you 0.001%. You've got a good amount of window. You don't have 40 years. Your timeline is different. So, you know, Frank kind of works through this and all of, you know, all of these are based around different timelines. And that is actually probably the big takeaway for many of us is it's not as big of a question as what is your risk tolerance is also what is your timeline? 
That's a different way of looking at it, but your risk tolerance is inexorably tied to the, your timeline for needing the money. So thinking through that. And so Brad, now these are these big portfolios from friends. We can add on to this, but we could also come and take a slightly different approach and we could take a look at like a, a dividend portfolio. And I'll, and I'll kind of give this back to you because this is where Ed really brought the initial idea. But I just want to say that this whole concept doesn't really work as well for investors that are still trying to build their own perfect index and are swapping out their funds all the time as they try to pin down the 10 perfect funds. This is really, you know, you're going to start getting into selection bias when you always have a portfolio where you're cutting the losers from your fund, you're putting new funds in. It's just not going to track as nicely. This is a problem we see sometimes with uh, things like Morningstar, et cetera, is like we end up just highlighting the winners and we don't talk about the 3,000 losers that, you know, just didn't make the cut. But if you are in a situation where you are a dividend investor and these are companies that you're owning for the very, very long term, and you're thinking about this as creating your own form of income, then we do in fact have something that we could track and we could look back at this data over the past five years and say, okay, this is what you could expect over this timeline, or this is what you could expect over a longer period. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is where those of us who are in the not extraordinarily pro-dividend camp. You not know, extraordinarily pro-dividend. I wonder if there was a long story short way of saying, I'm not a fan of dividend investing. I just yes. wonder. Maybe. Abject <laughs> hatred of the dividends. I don't hate you guys. <laughs> Brad hates dividend investors. I don't know why I've tried to talk him down. It's like, doesn't seem reasonable. But no. I'm just kidding, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, to me, it's, it's overall return. So, uh, and there is nuance here, right? So if you're in the wealth accumulation stage, I think, very clearly, this is not going to be your optimal strategy. If the goal is, and the goal might not be, right? But my goal is to have the highest net worth that I can 50 years from now. But if that's not your goal, if your goal is something else entirely to get income in the form of dividends, if you consider that income, then this might be a strategy. Hey, maybe your net worth is significant enough and you don't care about growing it anymore. You just want the dividend return and you want that stream of income, you know, Somebody like me would say, I'd rather have a higher return and a higher net worth and then just sell a small portion of my of my significantly higher assets. <laughs> right. And for my own stream. But, you know, beside the point, I guess. So this is the pie that Ed set up as a starter dividend pie. So this is where the genesis of this whole idea came from. And, you know, I have to say, looking at the dividend yield, it's pretty darn significant. It's 5.355%. So I think that 5.355% dividend yield is the the current yield. Uh, that's what it appears here based on what I'm clicking through on M1. And, and the vast majority of these that Ed has picked out, and this is his personal portfolio, these are individual stocks. There is one small 5% of the holdings is in a Vanguard ETF, but it looks like every single other thing here is an individual stock. So you know, Jonathan, going back to what I was saying, the return over five years is just about 25%. But like I said, the dividend yield is 5%. I agree with you, Brad. I really want return. Like I really want total return and I'll sort fixed income through a series of other strategies, like having a really big return that I then turn as I start needing the money into a more conservative return that's more predictable and reliable, something like that. Yeah, there's a lot more elegant way to do it. And, but Ed and is just, super optimized, Brad, and he disagrees with us on this. He's a dividend yeah. investor. There's a lot of very intelligent people, more intelligent than you and I, that disagree with us and are dividend investors. They haven't been able to yep. convince um, us, but it doesn't mean that we're right or they're wrong. 
Uh, no, no. And that, and that is one thing that we always say here. There's no dogma. So yeah, this is clearly my strong opinion, but and uh, I think Brad infiltrated me. Like I am susceptible to Brad's opinion on this one. It is, it has become my opinion over time. I don't know if I felt that strongly about it, you know, four years ago when we started. So whatever you're selling, Brad is contagious is all I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, good to hear. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you know, Warren Buffett would always say, like you said, with the utility companies, that makes perfect sense, right? Like, Hey, we can't do anything more productive with this money. This is a, a stream of income and you as an investor, you get a piece of this. That That's clear as day. But you know, someone like Warren Buffett would say, there are a million things I can do better with this money than just give it back to their shareholders. I want to, to grow their worth, right? Like I want to invest in other companies that I can buy 100% of and grow, or I want to buy stocks that I pick that I think are going to outperform. So, you know, it, clearly totally different strategies. And I think there is, like we said 10 minutes ago, there's a case to be made certainly for where you are in your journey. I mean, I think my strong opinion is if you're in a wealth accumulation stage, the dividend strategy makes little to no sense, but clearly at the end of the day to each his own. All right. So here we go. We got our pies here. Now, what's interesting about this is that we can track this on an, you know, an annual basis going forward to see how these numbers map out for those of you that are wanting to check, look in and look on a horse race and are, you know, the time to maybe switch strategies is not when the market's doing really, really badly because now you're selling low, but it's to make calculated decisions when your portfolio is really working. When everything's going really, really well and you're still not satisfied with your thesis or you have questions about your thesis, that's the time to make, you know, start considering making small changes or optimizations or considering an additional strategy. So maybe now, you know, maybe this is the time. Go look at your investor policy statement, see what, you know, figure out what it is that your your goals are for the next several years, for the next several decades, and think about whether or not one of these strategies might be a good fit for you and why. You should be able to verbalize it. Here's what I believe. And then commit to that. And uh, it's just, this is a fun conversation to have. And for those of us, even those of us that have no plans on making any changes based on any of this, it might be cool to know that there's a place that you can go to see how what you're doing is comparing to these other really phenomenal strategies that are out there. So if you want to follow up on this, just go to chooseify.com slash pie, and we will keep making this article more epic every single year as we get more data. If you have a pie, one that is a long-term buy and hold investing pie, one that maybe you've done a lot of research on, one that you believe in strongly, one that you know is very popular and we just frankly missed it and you can't understand why, then in that case, let me encourage you to be on our weekly newsletter. It's the Fi Weekly, where Brad basically sends out a once-week newsletter letting you know what's going on in the community, asking you what actions you've taken this week, and it would be a wonderful opportunity for you to say, you guys missed this. It'd be really cool if you added it and give us some more information. Maybe we could take some community suggestions and uh, look at updating this with those suggestions in the future. So, um, Brad, I really enjoyed putting this together. It's really nice to see all these coming together in one place, and I look forward to getting community feedback on this. Yeah, yeah, it should be should be cool. This was a fun conversation. Yeah. Big thanks to Ed and the team for putting this together. And yeah, like Jonathan was saying, if there's somebody out there that you're interested in finding out, Hey, what would their 
investing pie look like? We can definitely make that happen. So yeah, chooseavetta.com slash subscribe and you can get on my five-weekly newsletter that I send out every Tuesday and yeah, just hit reply. I read every single email that comes in. I try my best to reply to most of them, all of them, but I'm uh, somewhat hopelessly behind at this point, but I rest assured I do read them all. So yeah, this is really cool. And like Jonathan said, chooseavetta.com slash pie. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled.